You're listening to the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a paper by Neil Johnston from the National Archives UK, entitled The Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland, A Critical Consideration. I must say it's a real pleasure to be able to stand here today and actually talk about the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland as a reality, as an entity that's out in the world. I've been part of the project since, almost actually since the day I joined TNA back in 2016, and my sort of partner in crime and all this, Paul Dreiber, handed me this um, draft application by Peter Crooks and the now dearly departed Shay Lawless as they were writing to the Irish Research Council um, with this slightly hair-brained, hair-brained idea to see if it were possible to recreate virtually the destroyed collection that went up in smoke in 1922. And as I was reading the application literally on my first day, I just knew that this was going to happen, this was going to be funded. But working in an archive, as I do, as Owen said, I'm a historian, but I'm also the head of a team of early modernists, and I work closely with Sean Cunningham here, and it's great to see Lucia, my colleague from Collection Care uh, at TNA, and others. It's been a huge collaborative effort amongst within and amongst organisations, within and amongst countries. It started off as a small team, and it's pretty much continued as a small team. But we now have what we call five uh, core partners and over 70 participating organisations around the world. So what I'm getting at at the start is the generosity um, that people have shown us as we've tried to rebuild this project. And we couldn't, we couldn't really have done it without that, both within TNA, for instance, for me, from my own colleagues, guiding me and helping me, helping us understand the records in different ways. And then across the team, um, working with computer scientists. If you can ever meet a good computer scientist who works on the humanities, marry them, because <laughs> it just changes everything. It changes the, the, the way you can approach um, archives. And I also, just at the start too, I just want to briefly thank um, my head of the department, Jess Nelson, who's pretty much subsidised me to be here. And she's subsidised me a lot to get um, the virtual record treasury out into the world. So um, Jess's help and Sean's help and others has been really appreciated. But um, archives, I find, not just for those of us who use them all the time, but for the public as well, are abstract entities is the word I'm going to use again. Um, But they are abstract things. It's very hard to explain to someone what what an archive is. It's very hard to explain to someone, and it's an idea I've been talking about and progressively writing about recently, Um, this idea of the shape of the state reflected in the shape of the collection and the collection being able to sort of project back onto the state. So this is what we've tried to do. We had to try and conceive what was in the building in the first place to understand what was lost before we could go and try and identify replacements. And today, I'm just going to briefly talk through. So what is the VRTI? I'm going to... um, 
use the, um, the shortened version, if you don't mind, because Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland is not the easiest thing to say. We didn't do very well on titles. Beyond 2022 is not easy to say either. But that's the point um, I want to make. I'm going, we, it's been emerged in distinct phases, um, which weren't obvious at the time, but are now very obvious. Phase one being 2016 to 2018, when we had the the Irish Research Council grant and a team, a small team, was put together. Phase two being 2020 um, onwards when the Irish government stepped in with really, really generous support. And maybe we're hoping there's going to be a phase three. And how will it develop? And I'll talk about that a little bit and my own thinking about collections and archives and how we can try to uh, help um, develop research and research projects here in Ireland, but also abroad being um, models for virtual recreation. Um, you know, uh, DH projects are hard, they take much longer and than you think they're going to take, and they're really expensive. And while historians are expensive to buy out their time, computer scientists are really expensive to buy out their time. So these things, you, you never quite achieve what you expect to achieve. Um, but we are hoping um, we have created some sort of sustainable model on which we can continue to develop this project in the coming years because. It started really as... Actually, I'll just show you a couple of images. You're probably familiar with all of these. We, we flooded the airways with them um, over the summer. But this was the building itself, um, the future of the archives as it was in the 1860s, um, built initially for legal records, but then there was a, a political push, I suppose, to incorporate and create um, an archive, uh, the Public Record Office of Ireland, and everything else went in there too. Um, the great shame is on this side, this was the, where the gallery windows are, this was the repository, this is the reading room and the staff offices, this wee fire break here was supposed to keep any fires in this side out of that side and of course the opposite happened. This side was blown up and the fire stopped pretty much here and the, anything that was in the reading room that people were using the day that the building was occupied in, at Easter uh, 1922 survived and most things, not everything but most things that were in the repository are gone. So this is the reading room itself. This man is very important. This is Herbert Wood. He was the uh, deputy keeper. He wrote an inventory in 1919, again, a poorly titled book, but called um, A Guide to the Records Deposited in the Public Record Office of Ireland. It's not an easy one, but it's become our core um, uh, text. It's become our core everything. This is DHR, who went on to found Prony after Ireland was split in 1921-22. Chart plays a really important role in this as well, and this project has been built on their efforts and their successors for over, um, over 100 years now, as it, as it stands. This was the repository. The staff were pulled together, I think, in about 1902 for a staff photo, and that was it after the, um, the building went on fire. And there's poor old Herbert Wood standing amongst the, the rubble looking at what could be anything, some sort of parchment. Um, we won't for you, Lucia, to, to see what just could do with it. Um, but there's a couple of quotes um, from the Deputy Keeper's report in 1927 that I think are quite apt. Um, the fire left little behind but tangled ironwork, blocks of masonry, and the charred fragments and ashes of what once had been public records. To some extent, the record office may be reconstituted from documents in other repositories, and a certain number of ancient plea rolls 
blown out from Bay 3D. And I think that quote is important because they knew exactly where they'd come from. And I like that archival precision from Bay 3D were discovered more or less damaged by the fire and water. It was hoped that a considerable quantity would be found in this rubble, um, deeper buried, but that was not to be realised. And what actually happened was the staff were terrified to go into this rubble because there was munitions in it. The occupying forces had built a bomb factory in the building and when the, the Irish army started to shell the IRA, the bomb factory blew up in smoke. So we launched on the 27th of June this year, which was exactly 100 years since the building itself had been intact and hadn't been um, uh, uh, on fire. So the Deputy Keeper's report from 1927 and all of those subsequent are really important to us because this was the staff from the archive figuring out what could be done. Um, to be honest, technology didn't allow... Uh, technology not just in um, terms of computer technology, of course, but in conservation technology. And this was a state trying to get off its knees after the Civil War and in the years afterwards. Um, the money wasn't there to do anything about it. So 2016, this idea emerged. Um, Peter's idea, Peter and Shay's idea, um, to see could something be done about it. Now, this was right in the midst, in the middle of the Decade of Centenaries that was going on here in Ireland. Um, and the Decade of Centenaries has been very important for this project because it, in the end, it was the expert advisory group who stepped in to recommend that we be funded um, by the Irish government. So the, the Department of Culture here in Ireland have really made this happen. And we couldn't, we simply couldn't have done it without the, the capital support and the political support to make uh, a large-scale project like what I'm going to talk about happen. So, phase one, where we now see it as a proof of concept. What we started with was, this is the, the title page of Herbert Woods, A Guide to the Records Deposited in the Public Record Office of Ireland. This is an inventory published in 1919 with all of the Victorian and Edwardian peccadilloes about interest in medieval being the most important thing in the world and early modern less so and more modern bureaucratic records even less so again so the descriptions in it were vitally important in terms of we were able to say by turning this print book into a database we knew we had about 5,000 series we were dealing with roughly so as a kind of a like a, a foundation of what we were working with it was 5,000 series and we call that our inventory of loss that's the sad bit. But it was just a static database in phase one, and I need you to keep that in mind. But we did two things to it. We imposed ISAG on it, which is the International Standard of Archival Description, which meant the structure of the database was compatible with other archival records, and that's been really important. And secondly, we imposed linked open data principles on it from the start. So that allowed us to link the metadata between collections again. We were able to bring in archival investigations too. That was my role in the project at this time. So one, could a database be created over these couple of years that would be scalable? And yes, that was answered. That was comprehensively answered. But secondly, were we also able to go and find records? Did they exist? And the answer again was overwhelmingly yes. Um, we had a... We were unbelievably naive at the start, thinking that maybe we'd find 50,000 things. I think at TNA alone, at the National Archives alone in Kew, we have at least half a million Irish-related records. And that number is really soft. That's just counting as series or piece level, not item level. So there's a, there's a scale very quickly became uh, 
a champion of the project, but also a massive challenge for us. How are we going to deal with all this? And that's when we went to the expert advisory group. That's when we went to the culture department here to see what they help, and they did. Something else very important happened at this phase too, and we brought together the three um, state archives in Belfast, in Dublin, and London, and this was the first time they'd collaborated, along with John McCafferty and the Irish Manuscripts Commission, on material that had been published, and that was all made available to us, and the library at Trinity, and they were able to weigh in with really knotty um, issues around copyright and licensing and all this, you know, so there's, there's, it's been a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, collaboration, and that's, that's kind of at the core of it, not just with the five core partners, with uh, Dublin, Belfast, and London, but also spreading really around the world. In Britain, we've built great relationships with the British Library, Cambridge University Library, the Bodleian, um, some of the regional county archives where there's beautiful, brilliant collections. They're not necessarily kind of collections that were in the State Papers Office or were in the Public Records Office of Ireland, but they're very similar to what we call power replacements, and I'll get into all that in a minute. So very, very quickly, we began to build up a picture of, an overwhelming picture of, you know, kind of holy moly, look how much material is there. Um, so we were funded by the Irish government from late 2019 onwards. Um, we were able to expand the team, uh, in particular with the computer scientists in the ADAPT Centre at Trinity College Dublin, and they are remarkable people, like I say, if you get the chance to work with good computer scientists, but also um, create scenarios and questions for postdoctoral research fellows and for um, and up to professors in this world where they want to engage with digital humanities issues but they're career enhancing for them too so they're working at the frontier of their discipline and we were trying to work at the frontier of ours it was never a service provider issue but we were in a brilliant scenario where we could say look we have this idea do you think this could work and the core the technical lead after Shea died while descending from Everest in 2019 became Shea's PhD student Gary Munley who's an extraordinary extraordinary man with uh, a devotion to the humanities and uh, a sense of civic goodwill that is very hard to find in people. And um, Gary built uh, a database for us, a scalable database. He built what we call their data capture interface, where we, as the historians, were going off finding materials that act as direct replacements for what we'd found, uh, for what uh, could be slotted back in virtually into the the, the repository, and Gary worked really closely with us as we structured, as he, we, de, how do you put it, as we designed a virtual architecture, say, and built a virtual repository. So we built an infrastructure whereby we could be, with very, very clear, concise parameters, creating metadata for collections that get slotted back in and gets linked to um, what was on the shelves. So we're creating this sort of core data set um, that has, it has worked, I must admit. It. It's worked very, very well. Um, the process is, this is a kind of a, a flow chart of what we did, but basically it's historians creating data, which then the computer scientists take over and they work with, um, they work with uh, storing it, um, linking it, pushing it through various digital processes, which I'll get onto in a minute, but pretty much the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland will continue to be useless if the material and the data we're creating and extracting from these records is not findable. 
So that's where the ADAPT Centre come in again. There's people in there who are experts in information retrieval, in natural language processing, to try and teach the machines um, from the transcriptions that we're automating uh, to find and recognise who is the person, who is the place, impose ontologies upon this that are authoritative, and then disambiguate them. So how do you tell a machine who's the first and second Earl of, I don't know, um, Castlehaven, say, I know Michael was probably talking next to How do you do that? Well, you're pulling in data, um, verified data, linked open data from other sources like Wikidata or from the DIB, who were enormously generous to us. And just like they did with the McMorris team, they also gave us their content and we were able to split it out and use it as um, historically accurate birth, death, the floriat, the offices these people held. This is a state archive, so it's built around offices. It's built around interaction with the state. It's built around being part of it. So this is all of the various processes that we've, um, we've got going on, sort of loosely demonstrated in this. But the creation of the database did something else for us, and it did something else for me too, and it made us step back and pause. And you, there is the theory of what should have been in an archive, and every, you have that theory about every archive, because not everything that you would expect to be there was there, just like it, wherever TNA, lots of stuff is, we can say, missing, because in the 1750s, somebody walked with it under their arm, and it's ended up in the Bodleian, or it's ended up in the BL, or wherever it happens to be. So what should be there, and what is actually there, based on the replacements we're doing? So how much have I got? A few minutes. Okay, I'll wrap this up. So again, we were able to use technologies, we were able to use transcribus, if we... We've, we triaged everything. Is this just going to be metadata? Is this just, is this, will this be, say, images, or are we going to enhance them? Are we going to extract the text from on a scale that is not possible for humans? Dave Brown of Trinity did amazing work building handwriting models via Transcribus, which has allowed us, we think, at about 98% accuracy for the transcriptions we're doing. But those transcriptions are useless until we can start making the material within them findable. So it's that process that we worked through of the natural language processing and the software engineers working on that. We haven't quite got it yet, but we're getting there. We have done a lot of manual work, and it's interesting to, talk about, to hear Evan talk about what he was working on, marking up and tagging. We still have done that on a medieval gold seam. Um, uh, the, the Irish Exchequer um, was virtually rebuilt by Paul Dreiber and Peter Crooks and Lynn Kilgannon and Elizabeth Biggs, our, our, our colleagues on the team. Um, but what do we do with all those entities then? And this is kind of where we think about the future. And the future is the creation of a knowledge graph and giving things, like Evan said, unique IDs. So giving offices of state, Lord's Chancellor, uh, Lord's Justice, Lord's Lieutenant, whoever it is, giving them unique IDs. And everybody who held those offices at various times, giving them unique IDs. And the places where they lived and served, all of that, um, if they're Sheriff of Mead, if they are... Uh, Lord Chief Justice of say common pleas and their staff and their clerks so trying to, uh, trying to make all this material searchable is a, and findable is a challenge and then linkable to other collections so the project is going we hope to continue to grow in coming years the virtual record um, treasury will continue to grow but I kind of urge you to use it um, it's not come shown up on Google yet. So if you're working on things, if you're working on a project, stick the person's name or the place in to the treasury. And I hope you will start to find, you will start to see materials that have been either 
linked or digitized or um, expanded upon in um, various levels of detail. And then there's, well, I talk about this idea, I'm going to finish with this, the, sh the shape of the state and understanding what was in it, because when it comes down to it, the state is people. It's people in offices performing functions for or against others. So if you think about, and one of the areas I want to focus on in the coming years is the Irish Chancery. Um, Chancery uh, was, of course, the Royal Secretariat, but it also evolved its functions, and from the 16th century, it's an equity court. And within equity courts, people take cases that can't be decided by common law or statute law, and they have to present evidence to the, to the court in the form of a bill of complaint. Well, they're complaining about someone. And then they uh, you have your plaintiff making the complaint, and then you have a defendant who's allowed to respond. And these documents create or describe all sorts of relationships among people about land, about debt, about disputes, about um, life in Ireland in the, the early modern period. Some of them survived at um, the fire. Luckily, this one is from the National Archives, and there's a, there's a listing has been done, a brilliant listing, um, and we think we can start to work on them. Zoe Reid and her team have done brilliant conservation work on them over the years, so they're now readable, they're now imageable. We can start to um, put our attention to them if this is where we want to go. That's in Dublin. Jane Olmar has done, uh, Mary O'Dowd, they've done really interesting work on what has survived, and they've published on that uh, in Ireland. And at, there's material at the BL, um, there's some pleadings listed at the BL, which uh, we, we would hope to have imaged in time, but also at TNA. Irish cases were brought to the Chancery in Westminster for whatever reason, mainly because they were landowners in England who had financial interests in Ireland or land in Ireland, whatever it is. We're only recently coming across this. I think, at a guess, I think it's a good guess, there's maybe four to four and a half thousand cases have survived, but not just the cases. Because you have to submit a body of evidence, we have archives. People sending over their family archives, their family papers. These were submitted to the masters in Chancery, who would have read through them and decided based on a body of weight whether the case should be decided one way or the other. But they, lots of these were never returned. Now this, this is the family, and I'm going to finish on this. This is the archive of uh, Sir George Lane, who was the Duke of Ormond's secretary for um, the best part of the latter half of the 17th century. Lane took a case in the 1700s, the early, very early, so his son took a case in the very early 1700s, um, lost and they never took their personal archive back. And it's become part of the collection. There's six boxes like this, full of patents, um, deeds, full of items about the estate, about their land, about their life. Um, we only found it, to be honest, because on the catalogue description, it says there's a great seal, and there's a beautiful patent on it with a beautiful great seal of Ireland um, pendant on it. So we are sort of on the cusp with the virtual record treasury. We've built the infrastructure, and now we need the time and the support to populate the collection to the best of our abilities. And this is kind of a plea from me to this conference and to everybody. If you're building research projects and you're creating data that you think would be linkable with the kind of material that would have been in the public record office before it was destroyed, come and talk to us, because we might be able to link back. And all of a sudden... The data that's been created 
becomes so much more powerful. And it's in the graph, it's in the moving, this shift from moving from an idea of archival content to archival data on a scale that humans can't really deal with, any one historian can't really deal with. That's where we are now. That's what we're really trying to deal with, this idea of scale and the challenge of it is, is where we are with the, the virtual record treasury. But do go and have a look when you're doing your research and I hope that you begin to uh, navigate it and find it because there's real, there's real beauty within it. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.